Florian Gellinger is a Berlin-based co-founder of Rise Visual Effects Studios. Founded in 2007 with a team of 140 artists and offices in Berlin, Stuttgart, Munich, Cologne, and London. It's one of the largest visual effects companies in Central Europe. Florian talked to us about getting a start in visual effects by working on Roman Polanski's Oliver Twist. Later in the discussion, he focused in depth about some of the technical challenges in the following films and TV shows his company worked on. Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows Part 1, The Book Thief, Cloud Atlas, Iron Man 3, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes in Grindelwald, WandaVision, and this is just to name some of the projects. He also shared some thoughts on using practical camera angles when possible and how the company manages render times when a project involves a large number of complex shots. Welcome, Florian. Hi, thanks for having me. So I guess give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Tell us about yourself. And I'm born in 78, so I'm 44 years old now and graduated from school in 98 and yeah, started studying computer science, but failed and started studying engineering and failed again and started an internship in public relations. So talking to the press like I'm now. And, and, but my, my main, or one of my hobbies from seventh grade was always computer graphics and CGI. So I've been like back from the early nineties, I've been following everything that was in, in theaters like Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, obviously with the T-1000 liquid metal Terminator. And so that was always like a hobby of mine. And I was experimenting with software that I could find dial in bulletin boards and like Povre, for example, on my father's laptop. And in the late 90s, I started doing some Photoshop work and so on, but never really saw visual effects as a viable business or a profession because I, w- I always thought that this is too far away. This is basically being done in California or in London at the time. And, but yeah, then got an internship in a post-production company that was doing mostly advertising and commercials where I uh, dove in the art and learned the craft of compositing and 2D image manipulation in a more professional way and brought the basic knowledge of 3D animation from before from my home experiments with me and then figured out slowly that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is my hobby turned profession and I'm getting uh, earning money for something that I love to do. And yeah, and then in 2007, three friends of mine and me doing the same thing back then in advertising and and some film we found at Rise. And we just wanted to basically just do small films like German TV events or miniseries and art house cinema with a small handpicked team. And the rest is history. Kind of the moment we started working for American studios, word of mouth between, it's a relatively small industry as there are not a, not a ton of clients out there and not a lot of VFX supervisors running the big shows. So through word of mouth, we grew over the last 15 years and yeah, and now I'm not allowed to touch any graphics software anymore. <laughs> That's amazing. And actually a similar story of what I've heard from a couple of other guests that they've started pretty small and didn't anticipate how far this would take them. So I think that's really remarkable. And were you always really into cinema from like a young age? 
Yes, yeah, it came through my 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 older brother. He's eight and a half years older than me, and he was always like from the late seventies, like totally focused on Star Wars and on everything that Lucasfilm did and THX sound standard and yeah, widescreen VHS yeah. releases and so on. So he like from an early age on educated me in what to look out for and and took me to video specialty stores like with like really import VHS tapes from abroad that you couldn't get in Germany at the time. And yeah, that's how my love for cinema started. And, but yeah, back to what you said earlier, obviously the momentum that cinema visual effects got from, let's say the early 2000s definitely helped the profession, right? Because before that it was really only scale models and CGI to a certain extent. And then suddenly all the studios jumped on it and started producing more and more big budgeted blockbuster films. Also with the first Spider-Man film and so on was proof that superhero films could be adapted for the big screen in a proper way with let's say no or a limited amount of scale models and miniatures through the use of cgi and i think that's where it all started gaining momentum where then slowly the industry started to grow to a size where this actually became a viable profession. And before it just wasn't because there wasn't enough work out there. And it wasn't like a business model that the big film studios ever considered. That makes perfect sense. And so I guess when one of your earlier in your career, one of the projects that you supervised was Oliver Twist. Recall which sequences you worked on and for that project? That was more a coincidence. I happened to be there and the actual VFX supervisor, like a, let's say a seasoned professional who was on the show, he left. And then Roman Polanski's editor, me, who's been editing his films like since forever. Since Rosemary's said, Baby. Yeah. And he said, you know what? Roman doesn't like to explain everything again to new creative people who come on board and you've been on the show from the start as assistant supervisor. So how would you like to supervise the entire show up until the end? And I was 25 at the time, super inexperienced, but willing to learn and always a bit overly ambitious and too positive. And yeah, we did the, I think the majority of the work on the film, like building London, the period London with set extensions, adding birds everywhere, swapping out skies, villages, and so on, adding crowd and horse coaches. And so it was like, at the time for me, it was always what I dreamed of doing. And then by, by a coincidence, I finally suddenly was in the VFX supervisor's chair. And the team that I found at Rise With was basically my team that I worked with and that supported me tremendously on on achieving that on Oliver Twist. Yeah, it was a lucky coincidence. That's amazing. And what was some of the most technically challenging aspects that you well, faced? HDR just came from Paul DeBevec and his team from research. So lighting through like image-based lighting was basically just the slowly starting to trickle into the vfx industry and that's where we started to mess around with to see if we can get the lighting right based on high dynamic range images from what we got like what we read on the internet and yeah the whole process of building and texturing assets properly and getting that like into shots was 
nerve-wracking really like we, we haven't done anything on this scale before so for us like the we were coming from a background in german cinema where basically the budget that you negotiate at the beginning that's pretty pretty much it that's all the money the producers have and we never worked on any international release where the producers from the start have let's say some reserves to tweak the film for an international audience to just make it work no matter what the costs and that was new for us as well that kind of roman kind of started pushing us and said like hey i want this i want that i want to move these buildings back i want to cut out a floor here because this we see this building in another shot that was shot in the same location and it and we need to change the appearance so that's not as apparent and so on we were sitting there and i was thinking like holy crap like how's that going to work within our budget and then slowly we got into this process of learning how international cinema actually works that a great director like polanski he can ask whatever he wants for. And then you figure out the rest, like the financial financials with the producers. And everything was challenging at the time. There were shots that were like several hundred frames long, set extensions in every direction, green screens really close to camera because the whole methodology of the shots was super complicated. Obviously, like looking back from today, like with the hundreds of shots that we do, like on, on every show, it, it seems now we could do the whole Oliver Twist thing in probably a couple of months. But back then, like for us, with the tech that we had, the people that we knew from the industry who could deliver that sort of quality and build the world that he was thinking of and recruiting them or hiring them to work with us was something that we never experienced before. And I think that's that's the major takeaway from Oliver Twist, like hire good people, set up the show properly and so on. But it was tough. Everyone who worked with us on the show, it was way bigger than any one of us had ever anticipated. Yeah, and that, that was just a few years after he did the movie The Ninth Gate in the late 90s, but I'm yep. sure there was exponential changes in the industry just in those few years, just like there have been exponential changes in the last 20 years. He worked with American VFX companies on his previous films. So let's say he had a different understanding on what a VFX company is capable of and just voiced that and gave that as notes. And for us, that was completely uncharted territory. We like that somebody could look at something on like on film in a theater running like off of print uh and not like a dcp in a digital projector and then just give notes based on what he saw and walk away or play it back in in the early di suites that they had back then running on luster yeah was completely new way of working for us and i think just this habit like his education like he was well beyond what we were capable of he already worked with people who were delivering shows way bigger than oliver twist before but he it was just in his dna at the time that this is the way that vfx are done in post-production and that the world is his oyster and everything like every pixel on screen is a brick of legos and he can rearrange scenes buildings people any way he wants just to make it a better film. And that's for us was just mind blowing. That's incredible. And so Rise also worked on Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows part one. The two part Harry Potter finale had the additional challenge of being released theatrically in 3D. Did the shots that you worked on have to be converted from 2D to 3D for the theatrical version? Yes, yes. 
So we didn't do any stereo deliveries on that show with, with left and right eye separately. Deathly Hallows for us was a complete like a mono show. And then as usual with stereo deliveries, client would request mats or alpha channels for each individual object that you put into the shot. Maybe depth mats or Z-depth channels from C CG renders that just make it easier for the stereo conversion house to do the conversion. I mean... On most shows, like when you have large amounts of visual effects, obviously you, you always have these additional passes and elements that you can provide to make their life a lot easier. Also clean plates to restore things in the background that might be hidden in the left eye, but are no longer occluded behind a, an actor's head in the right eye, just by the shift of perspective. So all these additional elements, bits and pieces, rotos, masks, uh, in channels we provided and then another company did the 3d conversion entirely for the entire film but that being said i'm sure that there were like full cg shots coming from another vendor that were probably already rendered in stereo because if you're in in a full 3d world it just makes sense to set up a second camera for the other eye and to just do native stereo rendering rather than doing a post-conversion. But for us, just for our part that I can speak for, we did everything as a post-conversion and just provided layers and mats. Was that sort of a turning point for you, that project? Obviously, every step back then was just putting us on the map. You grow with the credits that you get as a company. And also like working on Harry Potter Harry Potter was and is like one of the crown jewels that Warner Brothers owns and that kind of are one of the key cornerstones of the UK film industry as a whole and the development of VFX houses in London. I had a constant stream of work coming from just Harry Potter over 12 years, right? Like from release of the first one until part eight was in theaters. I think for them, for us to be part of that elite group of seasoned VFX individuals was already enough great publicity and a way for us to get the foot in, in doors that was, would otherwise not open for us. Yeah, it was such a global phenomenon. So I can imagine that being awarded that work was a major achievement. I, you worked on a variety of films and projects between 2011 and 2017. A few of them were The Book Thief, Cloud Atlas, Iron Man 3, The Man from Uncle, Captain America, Civil War, The Fast and the Furious, I guess The Fate of the Furious, yep. and The Dark okay. Tower. Which of these projects presented the biggest challenges technically, and how did you have overcome those challenges? All of these shows had their challenges because you're always hoping for a show that's challenging your abilities as a company and giving you work of like stuff that you haven't done before so that you can prove that you can also do that kind of special, like not to be too niche and too specialized in, in just one thing, but just doing great environment work in great environment work in contemporary shots a great environment work for period pieces. Then you've got effects work, like naturalistic stuff, like storm, rain, fire, clouds, mist, or techniques like explosions and rigid body destruction and dynamics of buildings. And then finally, like character work, be it digi-doubles, like stunt doubles or characters, animals or creatures in the shots. So I think like the takeaway is like from every single show, we 
tried always to push it a bit further. Let's say The Book Thief itself wasn't a necessarily super complicated show, but there were a couple of things in there that challenged us quite a bit. Pretty big explosion shots with complicated simulations. Cloud Atlas was... There was a lot of variety in the film. There is a lot of variety in the film in general because it plays across different times with a lot of different characters. You have the future episode, you have stuff in San Francisco that we shot in Glasgow and so on. So everything in Cloud Atlas was challenging because a lot of the work you only did for one specific, like a one-off shot, and then you moved on to do the next thing. While films Captain America, for example, you have an entire sequence that's playing in one location and you're extending the location 360 degrees no matter where you're looking. Like every show has their challenges. Man from Uncle, we rebuilt Berlin from, from the late 60s during time of the Cold War when they tried to get across the Berlin Wall to West Berlin. And because they are traveling in cars through East Berlin, they're covering a lot of a lot of distance. So they're driving like, I don't know what it is, like uh, six, six, seven miles of road that needed to be extended. And they basically just shot it on an empty parking lot in London. And none of the buildings existed on set. So the whole car chase is like full CG backgrounds. And sometimes we swapped out the cars and even the cast because it looked better when reflecting like the, the newly inserted CG buildings and adjusting to the lighting that, that we applied. But yeah, so they all had their challenges. And I think like most of the shows, even until today, they all need to find their specific handcrafted solution to their challenges. So while we now employ way more people, and have more experience in all of the, let's say, standard tasks and film genres, I would still say that there is a lot of work involved when you start a new show thinking about, okay, so this is the br client brief, but what else could come up? Like, how do we prepare for this so that when those requests come in and when we need to deliver large quantities of shots in a limited amount of time before the film is distributed or released. How do we achieve that? With render, render times, number of artists and human resources on the show, and all the different factors involved. So it's just a gigantic machine with a lot of moving gears, and it's really hard to control. But yeah, I think just communication is key to make it work in the end and being well prepared for everything that might come like from, from experience. Speaking of deadlines, uh, so on a major project like Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, does your do all of your offices get involved with the sequences assigned to Rise? And how do you divide up the work that's needed to make those de deadlines? It depends. Sometimes we split the work across across facilities, if it makes sense. Ideally, standalone sequences that have maybe the use of different 3D models or assets overlapping from one facility to the other. So that just needs to be built once, but then everybody's kind of taking advantage of it. But the majority of work we try to put into one office so that you have the people doing the work sitting close to each other and working directly with each other. But that being said, COVID taught us that working with people who are remote or sitting in another facility only requires different technical preparations to make it work in an efficient way. We still prefer to have everyone in the same room because 
just shouting through the room without scheduling a meeting and so on is way easier. And you get people's attentions just instantaneously without having to write anything and hoping for you to see it at some point, the notification popping up. But I think the advancements in tech and adjusting to COVID has taught us that working across sites can be actually way easier than we used to work in that way. But yeah, ideally every office is doing their own show also because I think like the pride that they take in their own work and so on, having it accomplished as a team on like in the same location and then heading out for a beer on, on, on delivery night as kind of something that you can't really replace. Especially in Berlin where the Beer is delicious. We could have that discussion with our Munich office. I think they disagree. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I've, I've been there as well. I, I enjoy them both. Rise has also been pretty active in television shows such as WandaVision, Hawkeye. And is that is the way that you assemble a VFX team for a TV show different than a feature? And do your teams stay on a project longer with a show that has several seasons? I don't think so. I think... I think Television has been getting obviously a lot of attention through Amazon Studios, through Netflix, Disney Plus and so on, because TV budgets have just skyrocketed and everybody's competing for the same audience and subscription fees. So I think obviously everybody's trying to compete. Competing in a visual way means having more spectacular images cut into a trailer that kind of justifies the subscription fee that everybody's paying on a monthly basis, right? So you're trying to show people that their subscription is justified. And that's why you need to make bigger images to compete with your competition. Um, that being said, I think one of the key aspects on TV is that the focus of attention, especially on studio or client side, always once you move into delivery time in the schedule and you start to crank out the first couple of episodes and so on, make sure that that they are ready to air and everything is finished, done and dusted and ready for the streaming service or TV station. I think in television that there is a shift in attention based on what episode needs to air next, right? So like you, you work together with the client team the entire time. And then once you get closer to episode one being released and you're only doing work on episode nine, you don't get a lot of phone calls <laughs> because they're more concerned about what airs first and they need to figure that out with the vendor who's doing the work. And on the other hand, if your work is split across episodes, then they give you the schedule on when certain things need to finish. And that's different from a theatrical release. On a theatrical release, everything needs to finish at the same time. It used to be the way that, that when you still finished reels for a film like one at a time right be it like printed film or even on dcp from editorial you're still like most of the editors are still working in reels right that kind of defined your schedule but now with the major studios working all digitally most of the time once the edit is locked like all the vfx just have to hit the mark and be there on delivery day and then there might be a couple of fixes here and there that kind of go beyond delivery day if necessary but usually like tv is just different in the way that you have the stage delivery by episode and film is just hitting it all on the same day and hitting all the marks and in that way i think like usually 
film is giving you more time to prepare. TV is has gotten better. I think like a couple of years ago, TV was still like, we need one season a year. You have three months, four months of shooting, and then they return from the shoot. And then you'd go dive straight into post-production and everything has to be like super fast and efficient. While film, you could really take your time and figure things out and try to get the best possible result. I think that those times have changed. If you look at the Rings of Power on Amazon, I think they took a tremendous amount of, or gave the VFX companies a tremendous amount of time to do the work. Also us working with Marvel and so on, on the TV shows that you mentioned, we always get like more time than we used to on TV work. And yeah, as I said, because the budgets are also higher, the stakes are higher. The stuff just has to look great because people are paying subscriptions for it. It's not like advertising financed content. So I think like there, there is just a paradigm shift that TV series just have to live up to the expectation of being eight hour long theatrical releases and no longer like television. That makes sense. And I can imagine you mentioned earlier about render times. Obviously, they're shorter now than they were. 10 years ago, I remember reading an article, I think, with Martin Scorsese 10 years ago, and he was working on the movie Hugo, that on certain shots, they, he had to wait sometimes weeks or months for them to render to see how it was actually going to turn out. Is that still the case sometimes, or has it gotten a lot um, shorter? It, it depends. I think render times in general, it depends on what the shot is. We delivered a shot for Lisa Joy's Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson. When was that? Over a year ago. And the opening shot of the film is like two minutes and 14 seconds long. It was a camera flight through flooded Miami and ends up right in the face of Hugh Jackman. And obviously like that shot took a tremendous amount of render time until we had all the elements there, the CG water all the skyscrapers, suspension bridges between buildings, crowd walking across rooftops, cars, no, no cars, sorry, boats, because it's, as I said, flooded, drawbridges with trains, boats, tons of boats and ships and ferries. So until that thing was rendered, it took several weeks until we saw a new iteration. And by the time it wasn't representative anymore for the state of our work, because we kept on working and cracking on with kind of what we thought was still necessary. But in general, like the shots are somewhere like we always think like of a shot as, a, as an average length of 120 frames or five seconds. And for that, it's really like the render times are almost neglect neglectable. Once you have the hardware to take care of it, even if you have eight hours of render time, you should see your images the next morning when you come into the office. So I think it's no longer like a big issue. Nice. And... Rise recently worked on Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and your company delivered modeling work for some sequences. In the VFX process, how do you light scenes that require modeling? Well, lighting is, we're always taking the lighting cues from the director of photography because he or she defines the lighting language, the visual language of the film. And... We always look very closely to what type of light rigs they're using on set. And we're trying to mimic that for everything that we do to merge the most elegant way with the rest of the film. Like we did that on Man From U.N.C.L.E. as well, where we actually took HDR photos of all the light rigs that the DP used and, and tried to stay as close to the original lighting of the scene as possible. With night scenes, for example, usually like you get like your nice wet down to have some 
highlights everywhere on the pavement, right? Or and on 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 cobblestones and so on to give it some definition and depth. And then usually you backlight it with a crane and like a huge light rig. So the question is more like, okay, is there like what atmosphere is it? Are you looking for a magical fairy tale type of night lighting where you have the moon in shot? That's your light source that replaces your light rig. Or would you rather we move the moon out out of frame and kind of just suggest that there is a light source outside of frame to give it a more naturalistic look. On some shows, we've also done long exposure photography of city rooftops to see what the most naturalistic look is in reality, like uh, in a way that like a motion picture camera can never capture it because you can't expose for 30 seconds when you're recording 24 frames a second, right? You'd have to have that sort of unlimited, unobstructed view up to the horizon with the city lights and the night sky still giving you definition in your image. You would have to expose like for at least like 30 seconds on a DSLR. And that's what for our CG, we usually take as naturalistic cue when we do nighttime environments. And then we try to mimic that uh, to the best of our abilities and just pretend that the camera was able to record in that dynamic range, which is impossible, but it resembles what the human eye would see, right? Like with the human eye, like when you're out in the city and you're, the environment you're walking in isn't super brightly lit so that you have like proper exposure in your eyes and you can see like a certain distance and pick up on all the different city lights, then we always try to stick as close to the human perception, light lighting environments as possible. And then obviously away from that path, once something more fantastical or specific is required and the DP kind of gives you lighting cues. That's amazing. That's really fascinating. And yeah, you're right. I've been on, <laughs> I've been on sets where you're looking at something practically with your human with the human eye and you're like, why can't the camera have this kind of dynamic range yet? <laughs> so I understand that frustration, well, but I think it's really cool of that. You guys are really on the cutting edge of, of trying to really run those kind of tests to see what's the most naturalistic to the human eye. Yeah. You always need the right reference to work with something that ends up being photo real and is indistinguishable from kind of something that people know, or they think they know. So you always have to find the right reference. And if you can't find it, then you have to get it yourself. And that's, I think, the in essence, what good visual effects work is. Like when you're working with CG, most of the time, like when something is visible to the normal theater audience as CGI or like a visual effect, then usually I think it's due to a lack of reference or bad integration into the scene. And the more references you collect and imagine for yourself, like what this would actually look properly integrated into the scene or how to make it work based on the technicalities of how film is recorded, then I think you're on a good path. This is a natural segue to the next question, which you've already touched upon this, but how often do you have, do you make use of practical camera angles when creating computer-generated work to make the final shots look more believable? As much as we can, really. I'm a big proponent of not necessarily doing everything you can do just because the computer lets you do it. Fly with the camera through walls or through pipes and so on. I think it sometimes or more, more, more likely than not takes you out of the story. There might be artistic choices like 
strong artistic reasons for the director to request something like that. For example, Panic Room from Fincher is, I think, a very good example where it worked tremendously well because it was a stylistic choice to move the camera through this limited claustrophobic space and to show like how the whole geography of the building works. But sometimes I just think it gives a cinematic experience, a very video gamey type of feel just by detaching the camera from what it normally is restricted to do. And that's why like when we do, when we have full control and say over how to operate cameras and how to make it work, like we usually stick to, to what a physical camera could do or what a DP and camera operator would do on the day of shooting. I've actually heard that sentiment from other peers in your field since we've been doing this series as well. So it's interesting to hear that perspective and honestly refreshing because it shows me that you care deeply about the story. And it's not, I always say this about cinematography, right? Like a really good cinematographer could make beautiful images, but a really masterful cinematographer understands the purpose of the story purpose of each shot, like how it really serves the story. So it seems like what you're saying ties into that that you care very deeply about the story and it's not just about making cool looking shots all the time it's about how does this serve as a piece in telling the narrative yeah and even like when you're doing like a big environment shots like full cg environment shots and so on there are still like just looking at what focal length in like an aerial photographer or or like a helicopter camera would usually use to capture that kind of footage helps because if you're working with with a head that's i don't know like way wider than anything that you would actually use on a helicopter it kind of messes with your with just the way that you're used to seeing those type of shots and then it already takes you out of it so i think it, it's always like a give and take like most of the time you're trying to give the audience a visual experience of what they're expecting to see for a certain type of shot so that it doesn't take them out of the experience of watching in the story and watching the narrative unfold but sometimes there's no way around it there's certain things that just need to be done incredibly long shots for example where you start stitching individual camera takes together to make it like one one hole and so on i think like for specific things as long as these things are direct are artistic choices by the director and they are meant to convey a certain emotion or story point and so on i think there there's no way of arguing with that that's totally up to the director and the storyteller to decide like what what visual means they want to use in order to tell their story but i think on the other hand sometimes there are just some choices being made just for eye candy reasons that don't support the narrative and then that's where people perceive it as bad vfx and that's like the whole time we're trying to serve the audience something that is well researched uh, based on real world reference or otherworldly reference like nasa photography or whatever you want to do shoot liquids in a cloud tank or whatever as long as it's photographic it's going to appeal to the audience as being photoreal and the moment you move away from that, it has to be like for a very good reason. And then it has to be thought through from beginning to end. It's nothing where you make that decision during post-production and kind of have this spontaneous idea that this is something that would be super cool to have. 
and then in the end it doesn't work. Absolutely. I heard, I think it was the cinematographer Matthew Lee Batique that was on the Roger Deakins podcast and he was talking about the work he had done with Darren Aronofsky in the earlier films. I think it was Requiem for a Dream and certain things that were really stylized. He said that over time, he compared it he said in the early days, we used to put a lot of sugar in our coffee. He's like, That's why I was so stylized. And then throughout time, he gained the confidence to not always have to do that as far as pushing the visual narrative. Do you look at it something like that? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much the same. Just like if you can dig it up as a photo, that looks great. There's amazing press. There are the press photography awards every year with amazing images. I don't know, volcano eruptions or tidal waves or burning houses, bushes, whatever, like all the misery and all the beauty of the world. Like as long as you can pick something from that and make it work for your purpose, I think that's the way to go. That's a, that's a really good point about it, about the photo. And that's something also on my personal preference, because I've been getting bothered by certain films lately that they go... I don't know, like I've been paying attention to the color grading of a lot of films lately. It's something that doesn't look right. It really bothers me. <laughs> yeah, what you're saying. But yeah, again, it's like so something like that needs to be planned ahead. It's not something like one of a good friend of ours who's like a VFX supervisor we've been working with several times. He always said like a look is nothing that happens. Look is something that is planned, well thought through, lit accordingly filmed accordingly and then followed through all the way through post-production and di it's nothing like there are no coincidences in getting a great very look absolutely and so i saw that you worked on the french dispatch by the way i loved that film i just wanted to comment mm -hmm. that i love wes anderson and i love that film could you say anything about working on that project it was completely different from the work we usually do there is Let's see, is there any CGI there? I think there is almost no CGI. It's all like compositing based stuff, like multiple passes of things to be arranged in a very specific way, order, uh, position and so on. Because as like his visual style is so specific and you can just need to see a single frame of any of his films and you can immediately tell who's the director right like even without knowing the film like if the new trailer came out uh, of a new Wes Anderson film you could immediately tell that it's one of his films because it's because it's his style and everything in frame is 100% controlled like every single pixel be it on set through a production design or artistic choices in lighting and how the camera is being set up and panned or tilted and so on. Everything is an artistic choice. And he works through that way all the way through post-production. And that was just, yeah, combining all these different elements and so on to either comedic effect or to get like a specific stylized look and so on to steal elements from various plates and putting them together into a collage of new image. That was, yeah, a nice change for us. I'm glad you said the word collage because I was literally just going to say that. Like, that whole film was a collage of even different sort of styles. It kept you on your toes as an audience. There were definitely things that happened in that film where I was not expecting this to turn into a shootout <laughs> scene or something like that. <laughs> or just the animated sequences. There was just a lot of visually cool things that he did, like he always does. Really enjoyed that one. There are also like combinations of stop motion animation and live action photography of actors, right? Where you have this thing that you sense that there is something not quite live action 
right about it, but you can't quite figure out because it fits together perfectly, but the stop motion aesthetic of things being integrated into a live action scene gives it this stylistic thing, which is halfway between his stop motion animated films and the live action stuff that he does. So I think like he's also experimenting more as like over time. And now that he's, he, I wouldn't say that he's found his, his style now because his style was always like the key thing, like in everything he ever did. But let's say now he's starting to mix things from various approaches of what he's learned over time that he might not have done 10 years ago. He's continuing to push the envelope, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I think is amazing is that you're on the side of the business that's the most cutting edge. And where do you see this field progressing as you see changes? Where do you see things going? I think we're going to see a lot of AI tools being implemented in VFX and post-production and concept art. You can already see that with, with MidJourney and other neural networks that provide concept art based on, on there's a lot of research on generating 3D avatars, moving, being textured and so on based on AI as 3D, moving 3D models, just based on 2D video. I would also think that a lot of the stuff that we see like in asset build and so on, that in, in a couple of years, if not just months from now, you're going to dig up a photo on the internet and say, hey, I want this dinner table as a 3D asset for my scene. And the, the AI understands the dimensions of the table and the wood texture of it and the type of wood and so on, and automatically creates that 3D asset for you. I think that's apart from all the deep fake stuff with face swapping and so on that's already going on. I think this is going to have quite an impact. It's going still going to be an artistic choice in the end of what to use for a film, but what the computer is really good at. And this is like when you think back at the time when the first artificial intelligence pieces of software started playing chess against the chess masters, right? Yeah, the Watson. Um, yeah, they, they were just thinking yeah. ahead and they were going through all the various options of what their opponent might do and then narrowing it down through iterating on kind of what is most plausible. And I think this is where we are right now. We have like machines that can suggest things and give us, let's say, a hundred different designs for something that the director mentioned. Kind of give me a rough cliffs with kind of a pirate ship in the sea crashing on the shore and so on. And then the at night, moonlit, but moon not in frame and so on. And then the AI can provide you concept art like in a hundred different ways and angles from something like that with various ships and, and cliff faces and night skies and so on. And then kind of having that as a base for, let's say, a director to pick from, like a specific style or without going through concept art, just to narrow it down more quickly, I think that's going to help tremendously as well as building 3D models for all sorts of purposes, just based on photos rather than having to 3D scan and build everything by hand. I think that's pretty much where we are right now. I think like AI is just going to be the main tool that's going to change the industry, rotoscoping, like cutting out uh, moving people, including their hair, and integrating them in other scenes, maybe even relighting them, match moving cameras and giving you like a 3D camera based on just an image sequence without any manual interaction, uh, calculating all the distortions that, that the lens is doing and so on. I think all that stuff is 
coming our way pretty fast. I think the more important thing is to remind that this is always going to be tech that's in artist hands to be figured out like what the final image is going to be and to adjust it to taste. But it's it's definitely like a, a bold new world where the computer can actually suggest creative styles and ways to think about a scene. Excellent. And Florian, where could people follow along with Rise and the work that you're doing? We're pretty much everywhere on the internet. You can find us on risefx.com as our website and on the website you'll find links at the bottom left for instagram facebook twitter what else facebook is there more <laughs> i think there's <laughs> but the usual like youtube vimeo like we've got our before and after reels of, of most shows we work on and that's how we keep in touch with everyone linkedin ah. i forgot linkedin for also recruiting purposes to find the best people out there wonderful I greatly appreciate you being on the Globe Screen Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.